Christians, after listening to Paul's words in verses 1 through 4 of Colossians chapter 3, right before the verses that we're going to look at today, after listening to Paul's words in verses 1 through 4 of Colossians chapter 3, you should, we should have our minds where they need to be, which Paul says is in the heavens or in the clouds. Maybe some of you were told, get your head out of the clouds. Paul says, get your head in the clouds. Get your head in the heavens where they need, or you need to have them. You should be, Paul is saying, thinking right. That's what he means. And for a Christian to have their head in the heavens, to have their mind in the heavens, means you need to have your thinking right. You need to be thinking right. You need to be thinking biblically. This is what Paul called us to do in verses 1-4. through Let me read that. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So Paul says, seek things above. Set your minds on things above because you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And now, here's the transition. And now, you've heard us say this before, your right thinking should lead to what? Right living. Your right thinking should lead to right living. There's no right living without right thinking. There's no right life that honors and glorifies God unless you're thinking well. Unless your mind is in the right place. Your theology is important. Your universe view needs to be biblical. And then, your theology and your universe view should come out through your speech, through your fingertips. It should come out through right living. So, what Paul does, you could say, in the rest of chapter 3 and 4, is he summarizes right living for us. He gives us all this right thinking in chapters 1 and 2. Then he tells us to set our mind on that in verses 1-4 through of chapter 3. And now the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4 is very practical. This then is how you ought to live, but that's all based on and assuming that you've got your head in the heavens. That you're remembering who you are and who you are in Christ and who He is and what He's done. And then you can set yourself to behaving well in a way that honors God. So he summarizes this in chapter 3 and 4. And in these last two chapters, he basically says two things. Number one, he calls us to eliminate sinful behaviors. And number two, to cultivate Christian virtues. Or put off and put on. A phrase Paul likes to use. Put off the bad, put on the good. Eliminate Christian, he says, eliminate sinful behavior in your life. Put it off 
Yeah, but you put something on. Cultivate. Cultivate Christian virtues in your life. Or another way to say this would be to say that Paul is calling us all as Christians to pursue holiness. So pursue holiness. Put off the bad. Put on the good. Eliminate sinful behaviors. And cultivate Christian virtues. And the eliminating of sinful behaviors, that is Paul's first concern over the seven verses that we're looking at today. That's his main concern in these seven verses that we're looking at today. He's calling us as Christians to put off something. To eliminate sinful behavior in our lives. In the middle of the 16th century, there was a man, a pastor named John Owen, who in the middle of the 16th century was also president of vice president, I should say, of Oxford University in England. And he said this in the middle of the 16th century to an audience of new students. More specifically, his audience was 15-year-old boys with raging hormones who were new to the school and away from their homes. And this is what he had to say to a group of 15-year-old boys with raging hormones and all that comes along with that. He said this, Suppose a man to be a true believer and yet finds in himself a powerful indwelling sin leading him captive to the law of it, consuming his heart with trouble, perplexing his thoughts, weakening his soul as to duties of communion with God, disquieting him as to peace, and perhaps defiling his conscience and exposing him to hardening through the deceitfulness of sin. What shall he do? What shall he take and insist on for the mortification of this sin, lust, distemper, or corruption? That's what he had to say to 15-year-old Boys, some of you may not have realized that that was his audience when he gave the series of lectures that has become the classic on the mortification of sin for believers. Some of you have trudged through that book. He wrote that to 15-year-old boys. But I wonder if when he asks that introductory question, if some of you can relate to that. You don't just read that and think, oh, yeah, I remember that when I was 15. But if you think, you know, that's me today, I'd like an answer to that question right now. Let me ask his question again. Suppose a man or a woman to be a true believer and yet finds in himself a powerful indwelling sin, leading him captive to the law of it, consuming his heart with trouble, perplexing his thoughts, weakening his soul as to the duties of communion with God, disquieting him as to peace, and perhaps defiling his conscience and exposing him to hardening through the deceitfulness of sin. Can any of you relate to that as Christians sin that you're tired of dealing with over and over and over again. And John Owen asked the question, what shall we do about this, Christians? 
What shall he take and insist on for the mortification or the killing of this sin, lust, distemper, or corruption? Well, that is precisely the question that Paul is concerning himself with our seven verses today. And so we should concern ourselves with the same question. Paul, what do you have to say about the elimination of sinful behavior in the Christian? He has much to say. So, Before I preach, I should pray. Would you pray with me? Our Father in Heaven, as we come to read Your Word together, we ask that You would send Your Holy Spirit and help us to understand these truths and to apply these truths to our heart so that we could get our minds where they need to be on You and on Christ. Where the things of Christ are. So help us, God, to transcend our circumstances and our sorrows now and to dwell for a little while in Your courts by Your Word that we may come to know You more deeply today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5-11. through There are three imperatives from Paul here, or three commands from Paul here, and all of them are a call to the Christian to eliminate sin. So let me read through verses 5 through 11, and I'll point them out as we go. The three times that Paul calls the Christian to eliminate sin in their life. Verse 5 is the first one Put to death, therefore, What is earthly in you? That's his first command to eliminate sin. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. Verse 8, Here's the second time He commands us to eliminate sin. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And verse 9 again is a command for us to eliminate sin. Do not lie to one another, He says. In other words, While you are doing what Paul has called us to do in verses 5-8, through while you are fighting to put your sin to death, do not lie to one another. In other words, as we fight sin together, there is no need for us to pretend or be pretentious. And that's a major problem. Apparently in Colossae, and it's a problem for us today. As we fight sin together, we may find in us a propensity to not be totally honest with each other in this fight against sin. So he makes a point by saying, do not lie to one another, 
Then he gives reasons, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. You're an even playing ground. There's no need to pretend. There's no need to be pretentious. There's no need for us to lie to one another. When it comes to fighting sin, there are basically two biblical steps that I'd like us to look at this morning. There are basically two biblical steps for a Christian to follow in order to eliminate sin. Only two. And we see them here today. Not very complex, thankfully. How do I eliminate sin in my life? Two steps. Number one, believe. Number two, fight. This is what Paul makes clear. Number one, believe. Number two, fight. Now there is a lot to these steps. Can't leave yet. And they are much easier said than done. In fact, if that phrase was ever true, easier said than done, it's here. The task of believing and fighting. So how do I mortify sin? That's the King James word. We don't use that word very often today. But if you have a King James version this morning, you could take us to King James School where Paul calls here in Colossians and in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, tells Christians, you need as Christians to be about the mortification of sin. Which means the killing of sin. Very strong word. So how do I mortify sin? How do I fight? Well, it's a very practical question. How do I conquer temptation? How do I eliminate the sin? And the two basic biblical steps are number one, to believe. Number two, to fight. So, Christian, you are constantly asking yourself two questions based on these two steps. Number one, what must I believe? And number two, what must I now do? Because it's believe and fight. So, we're always asking ourselves, what, as I struggle with sin, what do I need to believe? What do I need to understand? And then, what do I need to do? So let's take our first question and see what Paul has to say about it here. What must I believe in order to overcome sin? What must I understand? Well, if a Christian is going to overcome sin, a Christian has to understand three things. At least, a Christian must understand sin, the sinfulness of sin, and the solution to sin. There's no overcoming sin. There's no eliminating sin in your life unless you understand sin and how it works, unless you understand how sinful sin is, that may sound redundant, 
But it's not, and I think we need it. And so you don't despair, because you'll despair if you just do one and two all the time. Sin and the sinfulness of sin. And just beat that and beat that and beat that and beat that. And you just kill that horse a million times. You have to also look at the solution to sin. So what does Paul say about those one at a time? Number one, what does a Christian need to believe? What does a Christian need to understand? Do you, ask yourself, do you understand sin? Do you really understand sin? Do you understand biblically how sin works? All sin, Mark 7, 21 and elsewhere, all sin has a starting point. And the starting point of sin is your heart. Jesus rattles off some sins in Mark 7.21 and then He tells us that they come from within. From men's hearts. So all of us have a heart problem. And superficial remedies will not work. That's what we start to understand. That sin is not just something I say. It's not just something I do. But it has a starting point that is much deeper than that. So superficial remedies, you see, those aren't going to work. But we can often get caught. It's usually what we end up doing. I want to stop this sin. And so I've got these superficial remedies. And we wonder why it feels like we're spinning our wheels. And here we are, 5 years, 10 years, 15 years later, we're still fighting the same fight. It doesn't seem like we're any further along in our sin. Well, we may not have ever actually understood how sin works. And our dealing with it has never gone deeply enough. Because sin starts in the heart. So superficial remedies are not going to work. So the remedy, to give some practical examples, the remedy for sin has to go deeper than software on your computer. And it has to go deeper than a cash envelope budgeting system. And it has to go deeper than a ban on all rated R movies. If you want to do those things, that's fine. But you're dealing with sin, it has to go deeper. Or you won't get anywhere. No traction. You see what Paul does? He gives two lists of five sins each. Next week we'll see five graces that he's going to list, but two lists in the second half of verse 5, 5b, and in verse 8b. In the first list, Paul moves from external acts to internal motivations. He's showing us something here. Sin begins in your heart. So he starts with the external behavior, and then as the list goes on, he traces it all the way to an internal motivation. Sexual immorality is the first thing that he lists, which is the Greek word porneia, from which combined with the Greek word graphe, we get our English word pornography. But this is a big catch-all word in the Greek, porneia. And it means all sexual activity that is outside the confines of marriage between one man and one woman. So what is porneia? 
that Paul is talking about here, he's saying it is any sexual activity, any sexual activity that is outside of the marriage bed between one woman and one man. And everything else sexually is sin. So they had, and we're going to see this in Colossae just like we have today, they had sex problems. And they had problems with their sexuality, just like we do today. And as second list, they had speech problems. He is saying, watch your sexuality and watch your speech. And I don't think we're far off from this early church. So sexual immorality is the external act, but then he traces it back to the heart of it. Before that, there's impurity. Before that, there is sinful passion. Before that, there is evil desire. Before that, there is covetousness. And before that, there is idolatry. So see the root sins of covetousness and idolatry. Covetousness is wanting what is not yours. That's what it is. And it is a base sin for Christians. Here, it's a starting point for all this. We want things that do not belong to us. We want things that we do not have a right to. And we end up worshiping whatever will give us what we want. And that's idolatry. So you'll never get anywhere in your sin if you're just repenting or turning from the sexual activity that isn't pleasing to God. But that's typically what we do. So Paul is taking us deeper and saying, don't forget about the covetousness and the worship problem that you have way back here that's gotten you into this mess way out here. So when you repent, typically, you and I, we don't repent deeply enough. We repent from this sin that's obvious, but there's a hundred sins beneath that sin that we neglect. And so what happens? We end up in the same place. And it may be because we do not understand sin and how it works. In Paul's second list, he just does the opposite. He starts with internal motivations and ends with the external actions or words. Anger, then wrath, then malice and slander. And finally, obscene talk from your mouth. So, Paul is saying you have to stop this stuff before it comes out of your mouth. So something comes out of my mouth and it's wrong. And you and I may be quick to apologize for what came out of our mouth. But do we understand sin? Do we understand how sin works? When something comes out of your mouth or when something comes out of someone else's mouth, according to Jesus in Matthew 12.34, what are those words showing you? Do you remember? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What comes out of your mouth? What about those you love? What about other Christians you're around? What comes out of their mouth? What is, what is coming out of their mouth pointing you to? Something in their heart. I mean, do we acknowledge that? I have found myself many times 
completely denying this verse, even outright to people, when I apologize for things that I've said. It'll go something like this. My apology starts well, and it ends terrible. Do you have apologies like that? The person you're apologizing to at first is like, this is great. This is really what I needed. And by the time your apology is over, they just wish you stopped talking. But this is not helpful. So the apology for things that come out of my mouth that denies Matthew 12.34 is something like this. I'm really sorry that I said that, sweetheart. That'd be my wife. I'm really sorry that I said that, son. I should not have said that. So far, so good? So far, so good. Scale 1 to 10, maybe an 8. Going pretty well. But here's where I've realized that I, I depart from Scripture. Son, I want you to know though, I want you to remember, Daddy didn't mean what he said. We all say things we don't mean, son. And I didn't mean that. Now friends, this is really hard. But that's not totally true. Not. Maybe right now when I'm sorry, I don't mean it. But in the moment, it was the abundance of my heart. My mouth wasn't just on autopilot, disconnected from my soul. Maybe in the moment, I said something that I knew was going to hurt you. Because you hurt me. And I wanted you to hurt. That is really hard to say. It is really hard to say. But this is the kind of deep dealing that we have to do with our sin. This is how sin works. I want to excuse the things I say and say they're just aberrations. When in reality, they are biblically, they are revelations. And I want to excuse everything I said. And, oh, that wasn't, but just I hope you know that wasn't really me. What does that mean? Like, am I saying I'm possessed by a demon? What does that mean? No, it was me. I did, I think it, I, I, I thought it, I conceived it, and I decided to say it. And I did. And there's just no wriggling out of that. So we've got to repent deeply. So it's one thing to say, I'm sorry I lied to you. But why did you lie to the person? Why did you lie to the person? Someone sends you a, a, an email with a, a bunch of theology and they're asking you a question and then you see them the next Sunday and you know that you saw the email and you didn't even want to read it. And so you didn't read it. And then they ask you, hey, Pastor, did you, did you get my email? Did you read your email? Yes, I did. I read your email. I did. Thank you for your email. And I'll get back to you this week. Lie! I just lied to that person. I did not read. I just told you, right? I didn't do this today or something. <laughs> this is like confessions from... But I have done that before. 
And so I've got to apologize. I lied. But why did I lie? Well, I want your approval. And I want to be seen as super pastor. And I don't want to admit that I neglected something. And I have an idol of approval. And it got the best of me. And I would rather often please people more than God. Holy cow. person's like, it's okay. Just, just <laughs> enough said. And you don't necessarily need to pour out your heart like that, but are you dealing with God at least on that level? So we need to understand sin, understand how it works. Number two, I said, do you understand the sinfulness of your sin? In other words, do we understand how bad it is? What does Paul say following his first list in the second part of verse 6? On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So how sinful is sin? How bad is sin? Well, on account of sin, the wrath of God is coming. So we gauge how bad sin is by God's right and holy response to it. That's how we figure out how bad sin is. So we don't just call it mistakes and oops and it's bad. I'm tempted to compare myself to others. How bad is my sin? And it's a trick we can all play. Well, just how bad is this? Well, it's bad, but look at this guy. Or look at, look at what she did. I mean, at least I didn't do that. And we start to find some kind of comfort there. We're speaking peace to ourselves. We're never called to compare ourselves to others. I must see my sin in God's sight. Now, where do you and I look to see my sin in God's sight? In other words, to understand the sinfulness of sin, where most clearly can I see what my sin deserves? On the cross. So how will I get this? How will I understand the sinfulness of my sin? Well, I need to look at the cross to see what my sin deserved. The blood, the pain, the rejection, and the agonized cry of Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson says, drag your miniature view of sin to the cross and hold it up to His precious wounded side and say, Oh God, deliver me from this because I understand this is what it looks like and merits in your sight. Can you look at the worst of sins and the worst of sinners and say as John Bradford did, there I go, but for the grace of God. Or can we agree with John Bunyan's definition of sin when he said, sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of His mercy, the jeer of His patience, the slight of His power, the contempt of His love. This is so important. We must take sin seriously. 
if we don't take sin seriously, if we don't understand just how bad it is, then we won't deal with it the way we need to deal with it. We will keep putting it off. We will pray prayers like Augustine did in the 4th century. He didn't become a Christian until he was 32, but remembered praying this prayer when he was 19. Give me chastity, God, but not yet. You don't want to pray like that. But we will if we don't understand the sinfulness of sin. And finally, what else do I need to believe? What do I need to understand under this first step? Number three, do you understand the solution of sin? So see, we need the deep diagnosis because a superficial diagnosis will just get us to superficial remedies. Do we understand the solution to our sin? Paul has just spent two chapters. Before he told us to do anything, before he told us to eliminate sin in our life, what did he do? Believe, believe, believe. For two chapters. And now finally he's saying, fight. Now that your mind is loaded up with truth, now you're equipped to fight. But we should read them again on your own. Colossians 1 and 2. We learn of Christ and who we are in Christ. And we there understand that the solution to your sin and my sin is Jesus. So we look to the cross. Verse 7, Paul said, In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Then in verse 9, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. He's saying, remember your identity in Christ, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. He says you're being renewed, Christian. You are a work in progress. God is sanctifying you. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But listen, he says, Christ is all and in all. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. And that's what he's been elaborating on for two chapters. So you need to understand sin and how it works. And believe how serious it is and how sinful it is. And you need to believe that there is a remedy. That there's a solution to sin. That fighting your sin does not involve white knuckling. Do we believe as Christians that the penalty of sin has been removed? That it has no threat over us, eternally speaking, anymore? Do we understand that the power of sin has been diminished? You see, sin is still a great power in the Christian, but there is much greater power in the Christian. So great power overcome with greater power. The penalty of sin has been removed. The power of sin has been diminished. All Satan tries to do is convince you that those things aren't true. No, you see, you still are guilty before God. You still are condemned. What's the point? What's the point? You ever had those kinds of thoughts swirling around in your brain? I've gone this far. I might as well just keep going. What's the point? What's the point? That's a lie. It's not true for the Christian. As well, the power of sin has been diminished. But we think that we're enslaved and we act like we're enslaved. We get to a certain point and we just give up. 
And we fail to remember and recognize that there is the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of Christ, indwelling the believer. And the primary reason the Holy Spirit is in a Christian is to make them holy. To make them more like Christ. But do we believe that and remember that? We're no longer in a state of sin. We're in a state of grace. So that's what we need to believe and understand. I need to understand sin and how it works. I need to understand the sinfulness of sin. And I need to understand the solution to sin. And then you're ready for step number two. Fight. But you've got to believe these truths first. And you have to believe the Gospel, the solution to your sin, first. And then you're ready to fight. So let me just say a couple things. There's so many things we could say about fighting our sin once we are believing the Gospel. And Paul will say more in weeks to come. But for today, I'd like to say just a couple things that I hope will be helpful as we talk about this step of fighting. Number one, the Christian task of eliminating or overcoming sin is serious, essential, grueling work. I'm sure those, there's better adjectives out there, but those were the adjectives that I picked on purpose. I get that when I read Paul's words here and elsewhere about our fight against sin. That this fight against sin, Christian, it is serious. It is essential. And it is grueling. It is grueling. I don't know if the Christian should ever feel like he or she is just on cruise control. You're probably missing something. If there is not some sort of grueling in your life, some sort of hard spiritual labor and work in your life, you may be missing something. If you are not spiritually sweating and bleeding, you may be missing something because this is an ongoing fight. I mean, unless you've arrived and you're no longer dealing with sin. And then Paul would say, if you say that, you're a liar. Under no uncertain terms, you're just a liar. That's what Paul would say. So I'm dealing with sin, and dealing with sin is grueling work. That's why John Owen, in that work on the mortification of sin in the believer, he says this, is the one sentence that has stuck with me more than any other sentence in his book. Very practical. He says, every day, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. If you just Christian, you cannot take your foot off this throttle ever. There's no neutral. There's no, well, I'm not fighting, but I'm not giving in. No, there's no neutral. Right? Be actively killing sin or sin will be killing you. One Christian author says, every day, put a sin 
to death, or at least a part of sin to death. Now when I read that, I do feel a little judged by that guy. Because the implication is that I've got many sins to keep me occupied every day for the rest of my life. Every day I kill a sin, well, I'll be done then, I think, in a couple weeks. I've only got about 13 of them. What happens? We just keep going deeper, don't we? I mean, do you? Maybe you don't. Maybe you need to start this work. But you dig up your hole, right? And you find your sin. And then you pull that sin out. And you're like, oh my goodness, there's more. And then you pick that out. And you, you keep digging. You can't even see the top of the well now that you've dug. You're so deep. And it just keeps going. I mean, this is true. This is true. When I became a Christian, I knew I was sinful, but I really didn't think I was that sinful. And it's really weird to me still to think that the more I mature in Christ, the more sinful I realize I am. So I'm better, I'm better, I hope, I'm better today than I was two years ago, but I feel worse about my sin than I did two years ago. But I feel better because of Colossians 1 and 2. So it's all, it's all of this together. You see, if you don't do that work of the Gospel and the solution of sin, you can't dig your hole. You can't dig because you'll just bury yourself. But if you understand the Gospel, you can keep digging your hole. You can go as deep and as dark as that sin goes because the light of the Gospel is still always shining on your back. And all you got to do is just, oh, there it is. Just turn around. And there's the Gospel. There's Christ. Unconditional love. Unconditional love. Unconditional forgiveness. It's like you dig and you find something and God with you says, oh, I didn't know that was there. We need to renegotiate our contract. That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. God knows. This is embarrassing before God and totally comforting before God to know that He knows how sinful I am. And I don't even know. Every year I'm finding out how many sins I do need to deal with. And God knows all of them right now. He knows everything I've done. He knows everything I'm doing. He knows everything I'm going to do. And all of that that is sinful me, before He said, let there be light, He set His affection on me. And decided to love me. Really comforting. So it is costly work. It is painful work. Which is why we use the word fight. Why Paul says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. So do not nurture sin. Do not cuddle sin. Do not deal with sin. Do not uh, struggle with sin. He says, kill it. I'd like to quote John Piper at length here. Because he, he just talks so well about this subject. Listen to what he says. 
under this heading, the Christian task of eliminating or overcoming sin is serious, essential, grueling work. It is a fight. It is a fight. He says, the only possible attitude toward out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. There is something about war that sharpens the senses. You hear a twig snap or the rustling of leaves and you are in attack mode. Someone coughs and you are ready to pull the trigger. Even after days of little or no sleep, war keeps us vigilant. There is a mean, violent streak in the true Christian life. But violence against whom or what? Not other people. It is a violence against all the sinful impulses in us. It is a violence against all the impulses in our own selves that would make peace with our own sin and settle in with a peacetime mentality. It is a violence against all lust in ourselves and enslaving desires for food or caffeine or sugar or chocolate or alcohol or pornography, or money, or the praise of men and the approval of others, or power, or fame. It is violence against the impulses in your own soul toward racism and sluggish indifference to injustice and poverty and abortion. Christianity is not a settle in and live at peace with this world the way it is kind of religion. If by the Spirit you kill the deeds of your own body, you will live. Christianity is war. Serious, grueling work. And then the second and only other thing that I would want to say about our fight against sin speaks to a point that Paul makes in our text today. You and I, will not overcome sin unless we bring our sin to the light. You and I will not overcome sin unless we bring our sin to the light. Monsters live in closets. We need to expose our sin. One of the greatest things that can ever happen to a Christian is that he or she be found out in their sin. Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever been caught? Is there anything more humiliating? Is there anything more embarrassing? Is there anything more shameful than being caught in your sin? For a Christian, it's one of the greatest things that could ever happen to you. You know what it means? It means God loves you. It means God loves you. Remember those who sin against God in the beginning of Romans? They are being handed over. They're being handed over. They're not getting caught. They just keep going and going and going and going. It gets worse and worse and worse. And to them it feels better and better and better. And they think it's getting better and better and better. And they're moving farther and farther away from God. You and I will not overcome sin unless we bring our sin to the light. Scripture calls this confession. And it is essential. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 28.13, whoever conceals his sins 
will not prosper and will not obtain mercy. Let me read that verse again. That is a frightening verse. Whoever conceals his sins will not prosper and will not obtain mercy. Paul is encouraging this in his text here. You remember the list in verse 5b and verse 8b? What is Paul doing in those lists? He is naming sins. Naming specific sins. These two sets of five sins should for them and for us, it should get us moving along. Like maybe these are some things that you identify with. Or maybe this brings to mind other things that you would identify with. And Paul often does this. Have you seen that in other letters that he writes? He gives lists of sins. He's encouraging us to name your sin. Confession needs to be honest and thorough and specific. How often is yours and mine our confession just superficial? I'm sorry for being a sinner. Okay. What does that mean? I I do that with other people at times. I'm sorry I sinned against you. Or even worse, I'm sorry you feel that I sinned against you. Which really means that I don't think I sinned against you, but you're super sensitive and this is your problem, not mine, but I'll get the word sorry in there and hopefully you'll just hear that. Do we name our sin? Scripture, like the one we're reading today, should be a sort of x-ray. What the x-ray is for our body. Seeing things that you cannot normally see. Pointing out problems that you may not normally see. Scripture, lists like this from Paul, should expose the ugliness that is within us so that we won't have any more superficial confessions. So have you come to grips with your sin? Can you acknowledge your sin? Can you and I acknowledge our sin for what it is? Can we name our sin? When we confess our sin, do we confess specifically? Do we deny our sin? Do we sugarcoat our sin? Are we thorough and honest in our self-assessment? Do we make excuses for our sin? This honesty in regards to sin, I think, is what Paul is most concerned about in Colossae, which is why, after calling them to put sin to death, he calls them to not lie to one another. Don't pretend. And then he says, you're on an even playing field. Don't you understand? You're all in Christ. Christ is in you. You're all sinful. You're all dealing with these things. There's no need to be pretentious. There's no need to put up a front. There's no need to say everything's fine when everything's not fine. Do not go on lying to one another. But confess our sin. Recognize that we are new creations. We are works in progress. And so there is no longer a need to pretend or to be pretentious because we are on level ground as sinners before the cross of Christ. 
We should name our sins for what they are. That is uncomfortable, but vital. You cannot overcome sin. Friends, you cannot overcome sin that you refuse to name for what it is. It's like this. I've been told that if I'm ever camping or backpacking, that good wisdom is if you get bit by a snake, you can, and if you can, you should kill the snake and bring it with you. And the reason you kill the snake and bring it with you is you go to find help is so that the poison that's in you can be identified. So you know, so the doctors know what you're dealing with. They can give you the right antidote. Well, the same is true for our sin. We need to know the particular sin. We need to know the species of sin that we are dealing with so that we know where to go in God's Word to deal with it. And so we must be specific. Isn't that hard work? Isn't that grueling work? Have you not sinned against someone and just felt the temptation to just stay short in your confession? To not be thorough. To not be honest. To stop with, I'm sorry I said that. Sorry I said that. But to say, you know what? I was, for example, I was really angry. I had no right to be angry, no reason to be angry, but I was really angry. There was malice in my heart. And I said things that should never be said to you. I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? That is tough. That's tough work. But it is true, you cannot overcome sin that you refuse to name for what it is. So in conclusion, we are not saying everything there is to say this morning about overcoming sin. It's not comprehensive by any means. But we are saying, according to Colossians 3, verses 5-11, through what is essential in this task of eliminating sin. We must believe. We must think right. We must understand our sin and how it works. We must understand the sinfulness of our sin. We must see it through God's eyes. We must understand the solution to sin, which is Christ, our Savior. And then we must fight. We must set ourselves to the hard work of bringing our sin to the light and to the cross. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, You know what is stacked against us in regards to our sin and our sinful desires and these sinful deeds of our body and the temptations that are abounding around us. So God, we thank You for the grace You've given us. 
We thank You for the forgiveness You've given us. We thank You for the cross so that at the foot of Your cross, figuratively speaking, at the foot of Your cross, it is the safest place in the entire universe for us to bear our souls before You. So God, give us the confidence to confess our sin and then give us the grace to raise our sin to the wounded side of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Pierce us and convict us. And may we see in Christ all of our sins nailed to the cross so that we could get up with joy, contentment, knowing that we are victorious, not in our own strength, but in You. So help us, help me, God. Help my friends here today to fight sin well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.